Deuteronomy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Then we turned and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. As the Lord spoke to me, Moses speaking, and circled Mount Seir for many days. And the Lord spoke to me, saying, You have circled this mountain long enough. Now turn north and command these people, saying, You will pass through the territory of your brothers, the sons of Esau, who live in Seir. And they will be afraid of you, so be very careful. Do not provoke them. For I will not give you any of their land, even as little as a footstep, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall buy food from them with money, so that you may eat. And you shall also purchase water from them with money, so that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done. He has known your wonders. And by the way, he hadn't blessed them because of all that they had done. Notice that. The Lord your God has blessed you in all that you have done, both the good and the bad. He has continued to bless Israel as he does with us, in what we've done, not because of what we've done. He has known your wanderings through this great wilderness. These forty years the Lord your God has been with you. You have not lacked a thing. I like that verse. And so we passed beyond our brothers, the sons of Esau, who live in Seir, away from the Arabah road, away from Eleph, and away from Ezion Geber. And we turned and passed through the way, through by the way of the wilderness of Moab. So Sunday we looked at these eight verses. We studied and talked about how the Lord led Israel through family conflict. This coming Sunday we're going to probably, uh, depending on if I can put it all together by Sunday, there may be more than we have for one Sunday, but we're going to look at how Israel is being led through conflict again as we watch day in and day out in the news the conflict continuing with Lebanon and with Hamas down in Gaza and uh, all the things stirring over there. But specifically, we looked Sunday at how Israel had to deal with conflict related to their distant family, the Edomites, that is the sons of Esau, dealing with conflict from a godly perspective. And we talk about how it requires, on our part, practically in our lives, compassion. That dealing with conflict means we need to deal with it compassionately. To understand what the other person in the conflict might be feeling. What they might be dealing with. Verses 4 and 5, the Lord says, they will be afraid of you. They'll be afraid of you. Be very careful. Do not provoke them. What's he saying? He's saying, look, Israel, the Edomites are going to be scared. And like frightened animals cornered somewhere, you don't want to provoke them. Be careful. Be cautious. Understand what they're feeling as you pass by. We talked about the fact that to deal with conflict, we need to focus on our own content, contentedness in the Lord. To, Lord. to know that what the Lord has for you is not what He has for someone else. It's different. Some have more than you will ever have. Others have less than you have had or will ever have. But the Lord has given, and I absolutely believe this, He has given each one of us the portion that He has determined for us to have. Why, I don't know. Why do some people have so much more? I don't know. Why are there times when we struggle and, and wonder why we can't have more? Well, I know that. It's because we're greedy. <laughs> but why the Lord has chosen to give certain things to certain people and certain things to others, I don't know. But remember in verse 5, the Lord says, I'm not going to give you any of their land. That is the land of the Edomites. I gave that to the people of Esau. We'll see going on through the chapter once again. He gave land to the people of Moab. In fact, he helped them fight. You're going to see that in a few minutes. It's interesting. He gave land to the Ammonites. This land is not for you, Israel, so be content with what I am giving you. By the way, if you're watching this current crisis in the Middle East, there are still those who continually on a daily basis say Israel needs to back off. Israel needs to give up some land here. If they would just give up the land, everything would be fine. And we all know what happens when Israel gives up land. Nothing good. They're not fine. It was just, what, a few years back here, 
was even a few years. It was very recent that Israel finally pulled out their uh, occupation of southern Lebanon. And we've seen what that did for them. But I wanted you to know that, if you didn't know this, it's only one-sixth of one percent of the entire region of the Middle East that belongs to Israel. One-sixth of one percent. That tiny little land mass. The Arab nations have far more land, along with oil and great wealth. You know, Israel has no oil. It's the one spot in the Middle East that is oil-free. All of the Arab nations around have oil and great wealth that comes with it. Israel doesn't. Interesting. God chose that land for them and it didn't have any oil. Well, that's by God's design. The Arab countries that have the lands they have, it's by God's design. As we see, the Edomites had land that God gave them, the Ammonites, the Moabites, that was their land. Psalm 104, verse 24 says, O Lord, how many are your works? In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. It's easy to be content when we recognize that all that we have and all that is around us belongs to the Lord anyway. It's not ours, so we shouldn't worry about it. Acts 17.26, we read this Sunday, tells us that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Why? That they would seek God. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So compassion in dealing with conflict. And if you're in conflict right now, this is, this is important for us to understand. Look at how the Lord led Israel. Deal compassionately with those who may be in conflict with you. Deal contentedly with what you already have, with how you're blessed. Know that you don't lack for a thing. And then, finally, number three on Sunday, we said deal with confidence. Because it's the Lord that goes before you. It's the Lord who is with you, even in the conflict. And I would add, especially in the conflict. That's where we want God to be. In the fray, in the middle of the conflict. That we might have confidence in Him and not in our ability to deal with things. Now, reading over these eight verses again, there's something we didn't talk about on Sunday that I thought was interesting I'd point out. Did you notice that the people had to purchase food and water? Now, there's a shift. Because all we've read up to this point is that God provided the water. God provided manna. God provided quail. When they were hungry, he made sure they had food. And now suddenly, for the first time, verse 6, you shall buy food from them with money so that you may eat. You shall also purchase water from them with money so that you may drink. Money? Where, did they get a job at Taco Bell in the wilderness? Where's the money coming from? Well, you know where the money's coming from. Think back. They plundered Egypt when, I, when they left. They left with great wealth. God inclined the hearts of the Egyptians so as the Israelites were leaving, they were just giving them everything. And so they walked out of there with tremendous wealth. So they had, they had the resources and God says, okay, I want you to start using your resources now. I want you to start buying the water as you pass through these lands. Buying the food. Apparently, the manna was becoming sporadic. It wasn't there every morning. It, it began to be less and less. It wasn't... Manna, 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 no more manna. But apparently, it was manna, oh, need to buy some food, a little more manna, make sure you get some water, a little more manna, buy some food. The Lord is starting to shut it down, but He doesn't completely, until they get into the promised land. Joshua 5.12 tells us the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land, so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. When they came into the land, the day after they ate of the fruit of the land, no more manna. But it wasn't just an immediate cutoff. Why? 
What's God doing here? Something else I would add to our list from Sunday, as we talked about compassion and contentedness and confidence, you could put a fourth one in there, and it's cultivation. Cultivation. Because God is a great parent. And great parenting cultivates. It nurtures. It prepares. A father gets the child ready for maturity. He doesn't just cut the child off one day and say, you're on your own now. And I believe that's what we see happening. And a great place to cultivate maturity is in conflict. Right, Les? Not that Les and I are in conflict. We're not. But we were talking this morning about this very thing. Where is it that the Lord often takes us to mature us and grow us? He takes us into conflict. And it's there that our faith is developed. It's nurtured. And so if you happen to be in a point of strife or conflict right now, you can stop for a moment and praise the Lord for it. You can thank Him that He has you in the midst of struggle. Because He's doing something. He's cultivating. Why? Because God expects His children to grow up. He expects them to to grow and to learn, to take new responsibility. Here for Israel to begin to take responsibility for their feeding, and that's a very biblical principle for the disciple, that we begin to take responsibility for our feeding. There are, our feeding is not always from another, but it begins to be something we do ourselves. Hebrews 6.14 tells us that solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Because of practice. The Lord wants us practicing, cultivating maturity. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15 says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That's, by the way, what we were doing a few minutes ago as we prayed together. It's the body building each other up in love. Growing in maturity together, in freedom, in, in, the, in the comfort of being able to share here in the body, in prayer and encouragement. So the godly answer to conflict requires compassion and contentedness and confidence and the cultivation of maturity. And God is beginning now to cultivate maturity among the people of Israel. Verse 9, going on tells us that the Lord said to me, Moses, do not harass Moab. Nor provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given Ar to the sons of Lot as a possession. Skip down to verse 13. Now arise and cross over the brook Zered yourself. So we crossed over the brook Zered. Now the time that it took for us to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the brook Zered was 38 years until all the generation of the men of war perished from within the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. Moreover, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from within the camp until they all perished. So it came about that when all the men of war had finally perished from among the people, that the Lord spoke to me, saying, Today you shall cross over our, the border of Moab. This brings up an interesting question, by the way, in, in a long, long debate that's been going on in Christianity. And that question is, when does the Lord consider a person to be accountable for their sin? You heard the old phrase, the age of accountability. And there are some religious groups who have tried to determine a very specific age that a person is actually accountable, and and from that age forward, they are responsible. And, And it's difficult to do that because our hearts grow at different rates, don't they? 
There are people who are accountable to the Lord for their sin at a very young age. They're just very aware. They're spirit, spiritually in tune and they know right from wrong. They know Jesus is Lord and they need to act upon that. There are others who just don't clue in for a long, long time who need a little more maturing on the part of the Lord. But I want you to think about this whole age of accountability thing. If we're looking at Israel, God did set an age of accountability for Israel. I'm not saying this is necessarily, I don't want to be dogmatic here, but it's interesting to me who was included among those who perished during the 38-year wilderness wandering. If you look back, verse 14 says it was all the generation of the men of war. Verse 16 says, It came about when all the men of war had finally perished from among the people. God determined it was the men of war. What age, what age did that start? Does anybody remember? 18. Close. It was 20. 20. Go back to Numbers chapter 1. The first three verses as the people were being counted. He said, From 20 and up, they shall be counted. Which means the 19-year-old made it through. The 19-year-old was not considered accountable, but it was everybody 20 and up who was counted as able to go out to war. That's interesting to me. It's a little older than I would have thought. Wouldn't you think, you know, 13, that's it. We have all our kind of preconceived Americanized notions about when an age of accountability really is. The Lord said it was 20 for Israel. Up to that point, they've got, you know, they've got childhood on their side. But if you hit 20, you ought to know better. You should know, know better. I just point that out because it's interesting. And again, a decision for Christ among us, it depends on the heart. It depends on where the heart is at and the growth of the heart. That we actually become accountable for our actions before the Lord. Well, Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 19 goes on and says, When you come opposite the sons of Ammon, do not harass them nor provoke them. For I will not give you any of the land of the sons of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot as a possession. Now, for those of you who like to track these things, we can follow uh, genealogical lines here and understand that both the Moabites and the Ammonites were also distant relatives of Israel. They were cousins. They were connected because Lot is the father of Moab and Ammon. The Moabites and the Ammonites trace their lineage back to Lot, who was Abraham's nephew. So they're connected there. After Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, after Lot's wife became a salty gal, after Lot and his daughters escaped into the mountains, something twisted happened. Let me just read this to you. Genesis 19, verse 31, tells us that the firstborn said to the younger... These are Lot's daughters speaking. Our father is old, and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine. Let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. Ooh. And he says in verse 36, Genesis 19, Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab, and he is the father of the Moabites to this day. As for the younger, she also bore a son, called his name Ben-Ami, and he is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. Which teaches us something else about accountability, about responsibility, about cultivating maturity. It's not just maturity that can be passed on, but again, corruption in one generation can breed conflict in another. The decision of Lot's daughters to get their dad drunk and go in and sleep with him so that they could have children and produce a people ended up producing a people that were corrupt and against and conflicting with Israel. Corruption in one generation can breed conflict in the next. And so often we see this happen in our families. 
decisions made two, three, four generations ago that affect us today, that still have an impact upon us. Which is why I think it's wonderful what the Lord says in the midst of the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. He says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, we've talked about this before, but just a reminder, a clarification. People will read that verse and say, oh, so God punishes kids three and four generations down the line from the original sinner? No, that's not what it's saying. It says he visits them. The word in the Hebrew there is pakad. It literally means to go see. So what God is doing in the third and fourth generation is not bearing down hard and saying, your great-great-great-grandfather did this, therefore you're going to pay for it. No, the Lord is visiting to see where the heart is. To see what that generation is doing. Are you still carrying on those old wicked ways? Or are you open to my spirit? Because if you're open to the spirit of the Lord, well then he shows loving kindness to thousands of generations to those who love him. Praise God. That's great news. He visits each successive generation to offer grace. That's what he's about. But it does make me stop and think, if corruption in one generation can breed conflict in the next, what kind of conflict am I sowing into my children? What kind of future conflict am I offering to others? Maybe not even my kids, but people that I am in connection with or related to or friends with. What am I doing now that's going to pass on to the third and fourth generation? Am I passing on conflict or compassion or the love or the grace of God? Father, may it be grace. Now, before we move on into Moses' recounting of the conflicts and the battles that were actually fought, beginning in verse 24, there are a couple interesting parenthetical sections here. You may have noticed when we skipped over one of them back in verse 10, at least in the New American Standard Bible, there are a couple, there's a little parentheses there beginning verse 10 and going through verse 12, and then they got up in verse 20, down through verse 23. We're to look at those for just a second. Verse 10 says, The Amim lived there formerly. Let me go back to verse 9 so we're in context here. It says, Do not harass Moab, nor provoke them to war, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given Ar to the sons of Lot as a possession. So the land of Moab, now Moses says, The Amim lived there formerly. It's not the Eminem, it's the Amim. And a different thing as a people great and numerous and tall as the Anakim like the Anakim they are also regarded as Rephaim what's that? it means giants big people but the Moabites called them Emim Emim means dreaded ones or terrors the Horites formerly lived in Seir but the sons of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place just as Israel did to the land of their possession which the Lord gave to them so the Amims and the Anakims are apparently big, fearless, giant sized people dreaded ones, terrors in the land but we're told the sons of Moab drove them out faced them, dealt with them now let's skip over to verse 20 now we're talking about the area of the sons of Ammon, the Ammonites, and the land that they live in, the possession that they have. And it says it's regarded, it is also regarded as the land of the Rephaim, for the Rephaim formerly lived in it. But the Ammonites called them Zanzumim. I just like that name, it's kind of cool. Zanzumim. Hey, Laura, maybe we could do that for the children's kickoff thing? The Zanzumim? I don't know. Sorry, right, it's a little inside thing. A people as great and numerous and tall as the Anakim. 
But the Lord destroyed them before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place. Just as he did for the sons of Esau who live in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites from before them. They dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. Verse 23, And the Avim, who lived in the villages as far as Gaza, it always fascinates me to see present-day places in Scripture. Isn't that amazing? Gaza's still there, still being dealt with. In fact, being dealt with as much today as back then. And then the Kaftorim, by the way, you might want to make a note of this, the Kaftorim are the Philistines. That's the Kaftorim, who came from Kaftor. Kaftor is Crete. So we know that the Philistines were not Arabic people. They were seafaring Grecian people who came from the area of Crete. And they were destroyed, and, and the uh, people of, Anna, um, of the Ammonites, they lived in their place. Now, check this out. Hi, Annie. How you doing? It's good to see you. <laughs> Here again, Moses tells us something. I want you to think about this, these two parenthetical sections. Moses says that Esau and, and boys, they went in there, and they drove other people out. And the Moabites, they drove the people out. And the Ammonites, they drove the people out. What did God's people do when they saw the giants in the land? They ran away chicken-hearted. Their tails between their legs, they were scared to death, and so they wandered for 38 years, whereas the sons of Esau, Moab, and Ammon, they fought out the giants. They took the land, but not the Israelites. Why is Moses mentioning this? Well, I want to put this as theologically as I possibly can. Sometimes God's people can be wimps. Sometimes the holy saints of the Lord are just pansies. They're chicken. Israel's fear of the seen things, that is these giants, instigated in them a lack of faith in the unseen things, which is the work of the Lord, and it resulted in years of wandering, and so God would teach them in these years of wandering how to trust in the unseen. Paul puts it this way, 2 Corinthians 4.17, he says, Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Listen to me on this. This is so important. The world has trouble. The world has problems and trials and turmoils and tribulations. Christians aren't the only ones. We are not the only persecuted people in the world. In fact... Think about it this way. Jesus says, Matthew 5.45, He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Everybody gets the sun. Everybody gets the rain. But in Christianity, sometimes we can start to pity ourselves and think of ourselves as the downtrodden, the persecuted. They won't let us pray in school anymore. They took the Ten Commandments off of the courthouse, man. We're persecuted people. This is hard. We're unfairly treated. We are the woe is us. We're the wimps. Again, if you think being a Christian is hard, try being a non-Christian. Is there anybody here who wants to go back? Is there anybody who would prefer a life outside of Christ than a life in Christ? John 6, 67, Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away too? In essence, Jesus said, as people were wandering away because his teaching was hard, he said, there's the door. What are you going to do? Do you want to stick with me or do you want to head out too? It's your call. And Simon said one of my favorite verses in all scripture, Lord, to whom shall we go? If not for you, where else? 
He says, you alone have the words of eternal life. And so the point is, everybody faces giants. Esau did, Moab, Ammon. They faced their giants. They fought them out. They possessed the land. We don't just face the giants alone, though, gang. We face the giants with the Lord. We have the Lord on our side. And so instead of cowering and trembling and fearing the troubles and persecutions and difficulties of the world, we face them head on because, man, we got God standing with us. As a matter of fact, we have God going before us. In that powerful scene where, where Jesus returns in Revelation 19, comes riding in on that white seat, and with the word of his mouth, with the sword of his mouth, speaks, and boom, waylays everybody at, at the Valley of Megiddo. In one shot, we're with him. But we're not fighting. We're riding our little horses behind him going, Oh, Jesus! Yeah! Fight on! He's, he's my Lord. Why do we think it's any different in our lives today? He is riding out ahead of me. He is fighting ahead of me. Romans 8.28, you know this verse so well. We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God. To those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that we would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He called. And those who He called, He justified. And those who He justified, oh, He glorified. He glorified. You haven't just been justified and made right before the Lord. You have been glorified. Now, I looked in the mirror just as I was walking out the door tonight, and I didn't see glory. Not quite yet. But this is one of those statements in Scripture that is so absolutely factual and solid and absolutely going to happen that Paul writes it down past tense. It's a done deal. You have been glorified. Our glorified bodies, those are to come, but we have been glorified. As far as God is concerned, what shall we then say to these things if God is for us? Who is against us? This is where my confidence comes from to deal with persecution or trials or tribulations in the world. Everybody deals with them. Everybody faces giants. I just face giants with a huge giant father standing right behind me, stepping right in front of me, taking them on instead of me. Amen. Look back at uh, verse 21. It tells us, interestingly, now we're talking about the, um, the Ammonites. It says, the Lord destroyed them, the giants, before them. The Lord fought for the Ammonites. Really? I, I thought he just fought for Israel. Oh, no. No, he drove out the giants before the Ammonites. And we also see in verse 22 that he did the same thing for the sons of Esau and he destroyed the Horites from before them. The Lord fought and drove out. It was God's call. Which reminds me of something. That even people who are not of the Lord, even people who don't have faith in Jesus, if we walk in this world, if we have any strength, if we have any ability, if we have any success, it all comes from the Lord. Any good and perfect thing Remember what James says? Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of life with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Any good thing in this world is a blessing from the Father. I was just reading this this, uh, morning in the news, Bill and Melinda Gates, Gates Foundation. The Gates Foundation, as of June 6th, this year, their endowment now is $29.2 billion dollars. Bill Gates has now resigned his, his, you know, at least chief place there at Microsoft to spend most of the time on the Bill Gates Foundation, a foundation that is about works of charity. Now, that's interesting because 
unless you've heard otherwise, I don't believe he's claimed Christ as Lord. And yet he's, he's, you know, over his head in tremendous amounts of cash flow trying to do good in the world. Where's that coming from? Where did the success of Bill Gates come from? The intellect, the insight, the ability. Where did it all come from? It came from the Lord. It came from the Lord. The Ammonites, they fought, but their success came from the Lord. The Moabites, the people of Esau, their success was from the Lord. It's not only the rain that falls, as Jesus says, but it's the sun that shines on both the evil and the good. The question is, what are we going to do with that? Our part of it is, are we going to praise the Lord and honor Him for it, or not? But the reality is, every good gift given is from above, from the Father of lights. Now on down to verse 24. The Lord is speaking and says to uh, Moses, Arise, set out, and pass through the valley of Arnon. Look, I have given Sihon, the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land into your hand. Now we're getting somewhere. Now we get to see some battling. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. So this day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the peoples everywhere under the heavens, who, when they hear the report of you, will tremble and be in anguish because of you. Why? Because God is doing it. Not because the Israelites were so impressive, but because God put that fear into the hearts of their enemies. So, verse 26, I sent messengers, Moses says, from the wilderness of Kedimah to Sihon, king of Heshbon, with words of peace. Now that's interesting because that's not what God said to do. At least my understanding here is he said, I've given Sihon, the king of the Amorites, to you. Go take his land. And Moses says, okay, but let's try peace first. It's not what God said. But God allows it. Moses sends a, a messenger, verse 27. Let me pass through your land, the message says, and I will travel only on the highway, and I will not turn sign to the right or to the left. You will sell me food for money, for money so that I may eat, and give me water for money so that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot. Just as with the sons of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ar did for me until I cross over the Jordan into the land which the Lord our God is giving us. So Moses' first volley here is a volley of peace. Here's a signed missive. Please, let us just pass through the land. Well, verse 30 says, Sihon, king of Heshbon, was not willing for us to pass through his land. Why? For the Lord, your God, hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate in order to deliver him into your hand as he is today. And the Lord said to me, See, I have begun to deliver Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to occupy that you may possess his land. By the way, just a quick comment. That word occupy, it's the same word as the word possess in the same sentence. It's not occupy. It's begin to possess the land that you may possess his land. Why do I point that out? Because I just don't like the way occupied is used against Israel as if they were an occupying force. That's, that's what the enemies of Israel say, is that they are occupiers in Arab land. That they occupy Palestine. No, they don't occupy it. They possess it because it's a gift given to them by the Father. That's what the Bible tells us. Well, then Sihon, with all his people, came out to meet us at the battle of Jahaz. And we're told the Lord, our God, delivered him over to us and we defeated him with his sons and all his people. We captured all his cities that time and utterly destroyed the men and women and, and children of every city. We've left no survivor. We took only the animals as our booty and the spoil of the cities which we had captured. From Eroer, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, and from the city which is in the valley, even to Gilead, there was no city that was too high for us. The Lord our God delivered all over to us. 
Only you did not go near to the land of the sons of Ammon, all along the river Jabbok and the cities of the hill country, and wherever the Lord our God had commanded us. Now we studied this whole battle with Sihon back in Numbers 21, but I just want to point out one thing here. The Lord did the same thing to Sihon the king that he did to Pharaoh in Egypt. He hardened his heart. God made his heart obstinate. The Bible is very clear about this. This was an act of God. What does this tell us? Very simply this. God will have his way. God is going to make happen what he deems fit. What he wants to make happen. God is a sovereign God. And he will do what he is going to do. Now there are few things more disheartening than hard-heartedness. Many of you have encountered hard-heartedness in your lives. A friend or a family member becomes bitter towards you. Maybe there's been an argument or a fight, and you're left with this, this sense of hardness. You can't break through. You can't get in as a result of some kind of conflict. And on your part, sorrow ensues. Anybody, well, don't raise your hands, but you just carry things like that? you got someone in your family that's, that's hard against you, and it's just a weight. And you'll go two or three days, or two or three weeks, or two or three months, and you won't even think about it, and then something will come up, maybe their birthday. And you think about it, and you just go, the heart, the heart is so hard. What do I do? How do I break in? How do I deal with this? And it does raise this question, how do we deal with hard-heartedness toward us? Moses offered Sihon the same deal as Edom and Moab and Ammon. He said, just let us pass by. But Sihon chose conflict. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but let me just say, when God hardens a heart, it's a heart that is bent toward hardness. Okay? So, yes, God is sovereign. But with Pharaoh and with Sihon, all God did was shore up where they were headed anyway. All God did literally was honor their decision. You want to be hard-hearted? All right, I'll help you. I'll harden you up a little bit more. If that's the choice you will make, and that's the choice Sihon had made, he chose conflict. So how do I deal with someone who chooses conflict rather than peace with me? If I'm pursuing peace, if I'm offering love, if I'm trying to, to make things right, if like Moses, I'm sending the messages. The emails are going off. Just let me pass through the land. Buy some food from you. Can't we all just get along? And I send that message, but hard-heartedness is returned toward me. How do I deal with that? Let me just suggest to you that your peace is in God's sovereignty. Your peace is in God's sovereignty. Considering again that famous verse, Romans 8.28, Who is it that God causes all things to work together for good for? It's those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. His purpose. If you're called according to His purpose. In other words, don't blame the person whose heart is hardened toward you. Don't waste your time murmuring against them. Don't you yourself become hardened toward them as they might be toward you. You take your peace in the sovereignty of God working out His plan. What do you mean? Gain even what Satan means for evil, God uses for good. God is doing something. And if you will determine to live in the Spirit... To live with the fruit of the Spirit. To be a person who is loving and giving and always seeking forgiveness. Even if someone whose heart is hard against you won't accept it, you walk in the purposes of God and trust His sovereign will. He's doing something. He's doing something. 
Possibly the greatest biblical example outside of Jesus that I can think of is the man, Joseph, whose entire set of siblings rose up against him. You remember they tied him up, threw him in a pit. They sold him as a slave into Egypt he went. And he didn't have an easy time in Egypt. He rose up to a certain degree, but then ended up thrown into prison. But by the time his brothers finally saw him again, we, we hear Joseph say these words, unbelievable, amazing words. Joseph 50, uh, Genesis 50 verse 19 says to his brothers, Do not be afraid of me, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me. Your hearts were hard against me, Joseph could say. You were brutal to me. You were jerks as family members. You kicked me out of the family. And it was wrong of you. He could say all this, but he says, As for you, you meant evil for me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive, Joseph had this incredible understanding of the sovereignty of God. My life is not in the dumps because I was kicked out of my family. My life is in the sovereign will of God. And he's doing something here. He's doing something. He is working out his will. How could Joseph have possibly known that? He couldn't. He just believed it. He believed in the Lord. He had faith that God was at work. It's a wonderful story. I want to be like Joseph. I want to be one who has the ability to live with my life resigned to the sovereignty of God. I just know, man, I'm just going to walk in His will. I'm going to focus on His purpose. And I'm not going to have a hardened heart toward those whose hearts are hardened against me because God is working. You rest in that and find peace in that, in the sovereignty of God. Now back in our present story, the hard-heartedness of Sihon yielded victory for Israel, and it was all according to God's design. Going on, verse 1 of chapter 3 says, Then we turned, and we went up the road to Bashan. And Og, king of Bashan, with all his people, came out to meet us in battle at Edrei. But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, I have delivered him and all his people and his land into your hand. And you shall do to him just as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites who lived in Heshbon. So the Lord our God delivered Og also. It's a great name, I'll tell you what it means in just a second. King of Bashan, with all his people into our hand, and we smote them until no survivor was left. We captured all his cities. All at, that, at that time, there was not a city which we did not take from them. Sixty cities. That's a lot of cities. All of the region of Argob, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. All these cities were fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides a great many unwalled towns. See, when we studied this in Numbers 21-22, that area, we didn't realize this was a massive, massive conquest. 60 cities, high walled cities, protected cities, and God went before Israel and wiped them out. It says we utterly destroyed them. Uh, verse 5, all these cities were fortified. Again, also a great many unwalled towns or rural areas they fought in. And we utterly destroyed them as we did to Sihon, king of Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, women, and children of every city. But all the animals and the spoil of the cities we took as our booty. Thus we left the land at that time from the hand, or we took the land from the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan from the valley of Arnon to Mount Hermon. And the Sidonians call Hermon Sirion, and the Amorites call it Sinir. We took all the cities of the plateau and all Gilead and all Bashan as far as Salika, Adriai, cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan. Now Og literally means, this is a good one, you ready? Og means hearth cake. Hearth cake. As in a cake you would make on a hearth. In other words, a pancake. 
That's what Og means. Heart cake, pancake, doughboy. He was a big, round, doughy guy, Og was. A big guy, a pancake. I wonder if he was, you know, maybe he was just born large and somewhat rotund and his mother looked at him and said, Pancake. That's what he is. Hearth cake. It's a great name. How do we know that he was such a big guy? Well, it's interesting. Verse 11 tells us, Only Og, king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. So there's big. Behold, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. Now, that word bedstead, it may actually be his casket. His casket. It's in Rabbah of the sons of Ammon. Its length was nine cubits, and its width four cubits by ordinary cubit. In other words, it was thirteen and a half feet by six feet. This is a big honking bed or casket that Og had, our king pancake. So, I just thought that was important to know. His name meant pancake. Interesting. Verse 12 going on. So we took possession of this land at the time. From Aroer, which is by the valley of Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead, and its cities I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites. The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. All the region of Argob, concerning all Bashan, is called the land of the Rephaim. You with me? Verse 14. Jair, the son of Manasseh, took all the region of Argob as far as the border of the Jeshurites and the Meachathites and called it, that is, Bashan, after his own name. Called it Havoth, Jair, as it is to this day. And to Machir, I give Gilead. Now, just so you know, Jair and Machir, these are the sons of Manasseh, of the half-tribe of Manasseh. Then verse 16 says, The Reubenites and even the Gadites he gave from Gilead, even as far as the valley of Arnon, the middle of the valley is a border, and as far as the river Jabok, the border of the sons of Ammon. The Arabah also, with the Jordan as a border, from Chinnereth, Chinnereth is also known as Genesaret or the, the Sea of Galilee. That's what Chinnereth is. Even as far as the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, or we call it the Dead Sea. So from the Sea of Galilee, running down the Jordan River down to the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. At the foot of the slopes of Pisgah on the east. Now remember, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh wanted to stay east of the Jordan. They didn't want to go into the Promised Land, and the Lord allowed it. The Lord was okay with that. If you wonder why... It's because God will not take anyone farther than they want to go. And the same is true of us in our spiritual lives today. God's not going to take you further than you yourself want to go. If you want to stop at some point in your spiritual development and growth, you can. And the Lord will allow it. In fact, and it sounds weird, but the Lord will still allow your salvation. And once you're saved, you're saved. The, 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 the grace message to us is once we have believed on Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior, we have our access to heaven. How much we grow in the Lord after that is completely up to us. We can grow a lot. We can continue to grow our entire lives. Or we can reach a certain point, level off and go, I'm good here. I like it here, East of the Jordan. I'm going to sit right here and be comfy and happy and, and peaceful. If you want to hang back, gang, the Lord will let you do that. But just understand that if you do, settling will arrest your spiritual development. And if you want to be someone who is, has arrested development, spiritually speaking, you can have that. Knowing that if you choose to settle, you will not experience all that God has for you. He's got so much more. In each one of our lives, think about this, where you are right now, 
It's, it's not even a tenth, not even probably a hundred, a millionth of what God has in store. And if you want what's in store, you got to go forward. you got to cross over. And it means conflict, and it means battles, and challenges and struggles that are ahead. But if you want more, God has more. We are, Ephesians 2.10, His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. But let me just say this to you. If you decide you don't want to go any further than you are, you're happy, you're comfortable, you're at peace right there, and you really don't want any more than what you have, that's okay, but do the kingdom this service. If you want to settle, at least stir up and support those who don't want to settle. At least encourage those who would like to go forward to go forward. Look at verse 18. Moses says, I commanded you at this time, speaking of the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess it. All you valiant men shall cross over armed before your brothers, the sons of Israel. Your wives and your little ones and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, don't have a cow, shall remain in your cities, which I have given you. Verse 20, until the Lord gives rest to your fellow countrymen as to you, and they also possess the land which the Lord your God will give them beyond the Jordan, then you may return every man to his possession which I have given you. In other words, you guys need to fight. You need to stir up. You need to support the rest of your brothers because they want to go on. And you need to help them do it. You need to make it possible. If you're not going to go forward, at least support those who are. Stand by your brothers and sisters and don't discourage but encourage their faith. Now this is something, and I don't think we do it on purpose, it's a very subtle thing, but we oftentimes will drag somebody down in their faith simply because they're starting to go beyond the point that we're at. And that makes me uncomfortable. You always have to talk about God's stuff everywhere we go. Can't we just go out to dinner and without you bringing up Jesus, Jesus, Jesus? I love the Lord too. We have to always have that Christian music playing. And we end up being a source of discouragement simply because we don't want to go deeper. Whereas those who are around us would like to cross the Jordan, would like to go deeper with the Lord. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. What can I do to stir you up, to encourage you to go on, to challenge you to deeper spiritual living? The Hebrew writer says, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near, this word stimulate, where it says stimulate one another to good deeds, it's paroxysmos, and it literally means to incite. And I like that. What a great definition. I'm going to incite you. I'm going to incite a spiritual riot in your life so that you are charging out ahead. I'm going to do everything that I can to get behind you and encourage you and tell you that going forward is what you need to do. And I stand with you. I support you in doing so. And the reason this is so important, gang, is if there's this problem that occurs in the body when my heart is not with the program. When I am hanging back, when I am settling, and the rest of the body would like to go forward, I can be a great discouragement to those around me. Let's skip ahead real quickly to Deuteronomy chapter 20. I want you to see one verse. Now this is a fascinating chapter, and when we get there it will probably be 
we'll probably spend some time on it. Chapter 20, Deuteronomy, and verse 8. All of chapter 20 is the laws for warfare. Verse after verse about how the people are going to go to war. And there's some interesting things in here. But listen to verse 8. It says, The officers shall speak further to the people and say, Who is the man that is afraid and faint-hearted? Let him depart and return to his house, so that he might not make his brother's hearts melt like his heart. That's a great word. If you're faint-hearted, go home. (laughs) Because you're just going to discourage someone else. You're just going to call them to the same level of faint-heartedness. I had a, a kid in, in my youth ministry in California, a kid named Kevin. He's a youth pastor in Texas now, and, and Kevin was just awesome. Big kind of an og type of a guy. Kevin had this huge football shirt that he would wear. And the shirt just said, go hard or go home. And I've never forgotten that phrase. Go hard or go home. Stir up, shore up, support, encourage, incite. Don't sit around and discourage. Let's incite each other to good works, to going forward. You may never, never in your life be called to a mission field. But man, you can support those who are. You may never be called to go start a church or found an orphanage or work with poor people in a, in a third world situation. But man, you can stir up support. You can get behind that. One of the reasons why we as a church and why many churches support missions, it's not just so we can go, hey, we support missions. It's so that we can be stirred up ourselves by what's going on. Now, when I sit down and I talk to Brian and Ruth Young about what they've been doing in Indonesia, and I've got a picture right now on my desk of a couple that we're considering supporting that right now are in the Philippines. Doing underground work, I think I've mentioned it before, underground work with Muslims in, in not only converting but training up converted Muslims to become Christian pastors, and it's awesome. And every time I see the picture of this couple, I think, this is so cool. It excites me. It stirs me up. And I want to encourage them as well. Stir up support for those who are going forward. Well, back in chapter 3, let's finish this up. Verse 21 is interesting. It says, I commanded Joshua at that time. Remember, this is all Moses' sermon here. So Moses says, I commanded Joshua at that time, saying, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So the Lord shall do to all the kingdoms into which you are about to cross. In other words, Sihon and Og were sneak previews of coming attractions. This is what's going to come. He says, verse 22, Do not fear them, for the Lord your God is the one fighting for you. The Lord says, Joshua, you see what's happened? You see what's going on? It's going to be like this. You are going to go in and conquer the land. And this excites Moses. Moses, who now is, what, 120 years old? He gets jazzed. He gets pumped up. Look at what he says in verse 23. I also pleaded with the Lord at that time saying, Oh Lord God, you've begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Let me, I pray, cross over and see the fair land that's beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. What's Moses saying? He's saying, God, things are starting to amp up and I don't want to miss it. I don't want to stay behind. Oh, let me go too. But the Lord was angry with me, verse 26, on your account, <laughs> and would not listen to me. You know, Moses was a little jab. God was mad at me, it was kind of your fault, but it, you know, me too. And he would not listen to me, and the Lord said to me, Enough! 
enough. Parents, ever do that with your kids? That's it. We're not talking about this anymore. Conversation over. He says, speak to me no more of this matter. But he says, go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes to the west and north and south and east and see it with your eyes for you shall not cross over this Jordan. Moses wants to be where the action is. The Lord says, you're not going to go, Mo. You're not going to go. What I will do is give you a supernatural preview. You can go up and I'm going to let you see all the land in a way that is amazing. We'll probably talk about this in, in a coming Sunday. But, but literally Moses goes up to Pisgah and when he looks from the top of that mountain, he is able to be capable of seeing the entire promised land, which you cannot see from the top of Mount Pisgah. From the top of Israel to the bottom, he sees it all. God gives him the ability to see more than he should have been able to see. But I want you to watch how this chapter ends here. It says, verse 28, But charge Joshua, and encourage him, and strengthen him, for he shall go across at the head of this people. That must have been hard for Moses. Moses who had led all these years, suddenly now God's saying, You know the little, uh, the little guy, your intern? He's taken over. So prepare him. Get him ready. You need to decrease. He's going to increase. Moses is now in the position of John the Baptist, isn't he? He shall go across at the head of his people. He will give them as an inheritance to the land which you will see. And so Moses says we were named in the valley opposite that pure. And I have one last thing I want to tell you. There are two reasons why Moses cannot enter the promised land. Two specific reasons. One is the obvious one, because he misrepresented the Lord. At Meribah, by the waters, in Numbers chapter 20, he misrepresented God. He got angry with the people, he called down the people, but God wasn't doing that. He made it seem as though God was mad at them, he was going to give them water, but man, he's sick and tired of them, and God wasn't. God was wanting to grace the people with fresh waters out of the rock. Moses wanted the people to feel bad for it. So there's a misrepresentation. And we're told in Numbers 20, because of this particular sin, he's not allowed to go into the promised land. But there's more to it than that. For honestly, Moses had to have sinned more than just that one time. And when I think about that sin at the waters of Meribah, if you read that story, Numbers 20, how bad could it be? I mean, yeah, he struck the rock and he got mad at the people and there was a misrepresentation, but I'm sorry, Lord, now let's, let's move on with it. That was a pretty serious deal. There had to be other reasons or other sins in Moses' life. We don't know because we don't have them recorded. Of course, Moses wrote the first five books, so why would he record them? But anyway, we don't know, but we do know something else. The other reason, the obvious reason, why Moses cannot enter the land. First reason, because he misrepresented the Lord. The second reason is because Moses represents the law. Moses represents the law. He cannot go into the promised land because, gang, the law will not take you into the promised land. Legalism will not get you there. Moses represents the law. Would you, real quickly, turn your Bibles over to Galatians? Book of Galatians in the New Testament, right after 2 Corinthians, right before Ephesians. Look at Galatians chapter 1. 
This whole book, this whole letter that Paul wrote to the church in Galatia is so important, it's so critical to the New Testament writings that we understand the dichotomy between grace and the law. And Paul writes this letter to this church in Galatia because this church is getting legalistic. And I mean literally, they had a group of people called the Judaizers who were saying, hey, it's great that you receive the Lord, it's great that you become a Christian, but you also need to be circumcised, men. If you haven't been, got to be circumcised. Got to keep the law. You've got to, to continue to do all of these works or you're not saved. It's Jesus and. That's the attitude of legalism. That's religion. It's always Jesus and. It's not just Jesus. It's Jesus and. In addition to the Lord, wonderful, grace, fantastic, make sure you do these things. And that's legalism. And Paul's writing in verse 6 of chapter 1, he says the following, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Skip over to chapter 2, verse 15. What is this distortion that Paul's talking about? He says, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law but through faith in Christ Jesus, even though even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Verse 19 on down he says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Man, you can almost hear a thud with that statement. Don't you dare tell me Jesus Christ died needlessly on that cross. But if the law can save you, then it was a waste of his time and ours. In other words, Paul is making a huge point. The law cannot save you. Look at verse chapter 3. It says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the law, or did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, that are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? Indeed, if it was in vain. So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Down in verse 24, he says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor. You're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man, male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you believe or if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Chapter 5, he says at the beginning, verse 1, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. Do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Don't go back to the law, Paul is crying out. And over in chapter 6, verse 15, 
He says, neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And then he says, and those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. What Moses and the law does is show us how badly we need a Savior. How much we need one who is in the flesh God saves. Yehoshua. Joshua. God saves. Yeshua. Jesus. Now notice this at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 2. Joshua. Charge him. He shall go across. He will lead the people in. Not Moses who represents the law, but Joshua who represents Jesus. Joshua is the one who will lead the people in. John 1.17 says the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Sunday was an awesome day for me. I had a great time. Uh, the picnic was wonderful, and just Sunday morning and Sunday evening, all, all that went on here and, and was going on on the property here was just great. But one of the truly blessed moments of the whole day was when Lisa was being baptized. I don't know how, how many of you were able to be down there and, and watch that baptism, but it was precious. We had a little extra time, and her husband was over at the sound of you getting gas, and so while we were waiting for him, I just said, hey, will you kind of tell us a little bit about what is in your heart? What? Why be be baptized now? And without going into the whole story, Lisa made a comment that just stuck with me. She said, I had never before in my life known that God was a God of grace. I grew up believing God was a punishing God, a harsh God. And she said, it's made all the difference. It saved my marriage. It's changed my life. And she went on to discuss and talk about several things. But that just that's the deal. That's what draws people to the Lord. That's what takes us into the promised land. It's His grace. It is His grace. It's Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus Christ. Grace and truth comes to us through Jesus. Not through the law. Not through Moses. God has a great way of bringing us into the land. His way is the way and Jesus Christ will lead us in let's bow Jesus we glorify we honor we praise you for being our commander of grace for being the one who has gone before us the one who experienced death before us the one who went down before us and ascended before us the one who holds in his hands the keys of death and Hades the one who has eternity in his back pocket. Lord Jesus, we praise you. And we thank you for going into the land ahead of us that you might prepare a place that where you are, we may also be. That's our great desire, Lord, to be where you are. And I am so thankful that it is not by my works that I get there. Because at this point in my life, Lord, I wouldn't be going. Not a one of us would. But by your grace, we are saved. Hallelujah. Praise you, Jesus. Lift our heads up and may we watch as our redemption draws near. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.